Good morning. Everything is settled. I've got it all good up here. Don't worry. I keep coming out with more and more stuff. I like it. Uh, well, good morning to you all. Good morning to everybody who is watching online. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, today, we will eventually, not right away, but we will eventually be getting uh, to Mark chapter 4. So if you're one of those people who like to know where we're going and put your finger you know, to, to mark it where we're going, that's where we're headed. But before we do that, I need to share with you I have something very important to share with you. Uh, it is uh, uh, the result of a recent July 2023 poll on the most trusted food brands in America. So the most trusted food brands. Uh, and so it was a very scientific poll. It was taken by me, uh, of me. So there was only one respondent. Uh, and the overwhelmingly uh, response, the top response was Oreo. So who saw that coming? Not me. I sure didn't. So, uh, and, and here's why uh, I, I trust Oreo so much, uh, is for this reason. I know you're like, well, you know, because they're delicious, but there's more than that. I, pro I promise you this. Uh, what, the reason Oreo skyrocketed to the top of my list is uh, I, I discovered this week, brace yourselves, that there is in Norway an asteroid-proof Oreo doomsday vault. I took a deep dive in the internet this week, my friends, because this was too good to be true. So I didn't believe, I, I said, this is far too good to be true. And, and as far as I can tell, it started with an ad campaign because there was an asteroid going by like 10 years ago uh, and they didn't want all the Oreos to get lost. But I believe everything, they, they actually built it. And if you find that they didn't, don't ruin it for me, okay? This is, I need this one, I need this win. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this means, I want you to actually consider what this means, because this is big for our lives. This is, this is huge. Uh, what this means is that whether an asteroid hits Earth, whether there is a zombie apocalypse, whether the machines become self-aware and rise up and begin to enslave us, it does not matter. Oreos will still be here. We will always have them. In fact, uh, so I, I then was like, well, what, what do they have in there? I wonder what kind, like what's going on in there? Is it like one Oreo that we have to somehow clone or what's going on? No, 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 this is what's in there. In the facility, there is A, the original Oreo recipe. So we still have that, nobody worry. Uh, and B, a large, gigantic stockpile of Oreo cookies. And they are all wrapped. They are, they are taking precautions that we will not ever be without Oreos because they are all wrapped. I'm gonna read this to make sure I get it right. Uh, in mylar, which can withstand temperatures from 80, minus 80 degrees to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and is impervious to chemical reactions, moisture, and airs, keeping cookies fresh and protected for years to come. Do you know what this means? I don't think it's sunk in yet because I don't see enough excitement going on here. What this means is that there are gonna, there's going to be a point when we are going to sit there and we are going to have a point of doubt and we're going to ask ourselves, is there anything good and beautiful left in this world? We will sit there and we will ask ourselves, is there anything left that can unite humanity <laughs> as, we <struggle. laughs> as we struggle to survive and hold off extinction? We'll ask that, I promise. And we'll be able to answer with a resounding yes because Oreos will still be here. And we'll even have the recipe. So we'll always have the actual real Oreos, not those pretend imposters. Those, the th I'm talking to uh, the, the, the great value twist and shout chocolate sandwiches. Those aren't real. If you eat them, fine. But just know they're not real. I trust Oreo because 
they have ensured that regardless of whatever is going on in my life, in the world around me, I'll still be able to gather around a table with my loved ones, enjoy those sweet chocolate cookies and that mysterious yet delightful cream that's on the inside. And you will too, my friends, and that is good news. Thank you. <laughs> we'll keep going. We won't end. We're going to, yeah, we're not ending that early. All right. So I imagine there, there's probably some of you who are like, this dude's a dope. What is going on here? <laughs> Why are we talking about Oreos? And there's a reason for this. Is because beneath the absurdity of this all, like I said, there's this hugely significant idea that, that, I, uh, that I want to speak to today. And it's this idea of trust. Of what can we trust? What do we trust? How do we trust? And if you'll remember, last week we started uh, in this series. Glenn kicked us off, and it's a series called God With. And it's the whole idea is that we, we want to keep in mind, we want to take a few weeks to remind ourselves uh, that how we think about God, how we picture God, who we understand God to be, uh, how we describe God, it matters immensely because it affects how we actually end up connecting with God. And so the goal is to help us come to a point where we can, we can say that God is and fill in what you want there. God is loving, God is kind, God is graceful, God is forgiving, whatever other word or attribute you want to fill in. And we can say that, and it won't just be something that we intellectually know that we, we can say and share with people and, and all of that, but it's actually something that we will have experienced fully with God. That's the point of this series. And so last week, Glenn, like I said, kicked us off with the idea uh, of what does it mean uh, to, to appreciate that God is good? And what does it mean to understand that God is good? What does it mean to relate to God in a way that you experience his goodness? And so this week, uh, I'm going to continue that. But this week, what we're going to talk about is we're going to explore what does it mean that God is trustworthy? Because here's, here's why we want to approach this. Because there's, there's a problem that we sometimes run into. And it's this, that you can sincerely believe that God is trustworthy, but it really, at the same time, relate to him as if he is not trustworthy. And we can find ourselves actually relating to him like he is distant. Again, we can sincerely believe it. It's, we're not lying to ourselves. We can sincerely believe that he is trustworthy and think that we're relating to him in that way. But then we can slip into moments where we may not even realize it, that we are engaging and relating with him as if he is not trustworthy. And this is some good news in that we're not alone in this. This is not unique to us. We see in Scripture that even the, the disciples of Jesus, the guys who spent three years with him, every day with him, also ran into this. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to explore this idea of God being trustworthy. And, and I want to look at these two postures, we'll say, these two ways of being uh, that the disciples uh, kind of displayed and, and believed that, that God is trustworthy, and, but at the same time engaged with him in a way that wasn't. Two ways that they functioned. Uh, and I don't want to just stop there, because that's nice to figure out, you know, here, let's see how we're, we're engaging wrong. But we want to be able to, to shift. There's got to be a beautiful thing coming out of this. And so we'll, we'll also explore what does it look like, uh, how did Jesus draw them into a trusting relationship with himself, and how does he do that with us? So I'm going to set the stage here. I want to, I want to set the stage for our passage a little bit, and then we'll, we'll kind of keep going. So 
Uh, our passage this morning, like I said, is Mark chapter 4. And at this point, the disciples have been with Jesus for about a year now. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. We're not quite sure. But they've been with Jesus for about a year now. And during this time, I want you to imagine, imagine what it's been like for them to have been with Jesus. They have traveled over the countryside with him. They've seen him do healings. They've seen him do miracles over nature. They've seen all these amazing things. They've heard his uh, teaching. They're, they've had their mind blown by the way he is presenting and talking about God and, and enlightening them and sharing brand new insights and ways that they can connect with God. And then, so chapter 4 starts with Jesus teaching. And he's teaching on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's this giant lake, and we see that he's often teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I want us, uh, I think we have a picture at some point where you can see what that shoreline looks like, because I want us to be able to put ourselves there. I want us to be able to sit there and say, this is where they were at. This is what they were experiencing. This is, the, this is what they were seeing as they heard Jesus speak. And it's, uh, they're on this shoreline, and we get to this passage that we're going to be in today, and Jesus has been teaching all day long. He went out early in the morning to the shore and has been teaching all day long. And it's now evening time. And this is where we're going to pick up in verse 35, chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. We'll stop there. There's more, but we need to stop there because there's a ton there to unpack. There's, that's something that's going to be important. So something here. If we, if we can understand the context, if we can, can look back into how the, the Jewish people functioned and what they were doing in that time, that day and age, then, then this is going to help us. Because something here it should be setting off some bells and whistles for us. First, in the chapters before this, as, as best as we can tell, Jesus has taught in the same place many, many times already in, in the, just the three chapters that we have before chapter 4. And as best as we can tell, he has never suggested, hey guys, I'm done teaching, let's go sail across the lake. Let's, he's never suggested they go sail anywhere. He's not suggested that yet. He's never said, let's get in the boat and, and go over there. And here's why that's important. Here's why that should matter to us. Because uh, the way that we view lakes is probably a lot different than Jesus' disciples and the people of that day viewed lakes. So, what I want to first show you is that here's a picture, another picture of just kind of the, the, a map, if you will, of uh, the, the, what do we call it? The Sea of Galilee. Yes. And as you can see it, you can actually, that's about 33 miles in circumference. So uh, if you were a fairly good walker, if you could, you know, could keep a good pace, you could make it in about a day. You know, it might go into a little bit into nighttime, but you could make it in about a day. Uh, and these guys were, you know, they were walked all over the place. So it wasn't like they weren't used to walking, didn't know how to set a pace and all that good stuff. So you can make it in about a day. And he said, let's just go over to the other side. So he wasn't saying, let's, you know, circumnavigate the thing. He's saying, let's just, we're going to go to the other side. So you're thinking here, there is really about half a day's walk, if that, to get to wherever he's planning on taking them. Wouldn't have been a terrible hike. Which is what, if he had said, hey, let's go to the other side, most of the guys in the group would have been like, great, let's get on our hiking shoes and let's get going. Because here's the thing, uh, the people in those days, especially the, the Jewish culture at that time, they viewed deep water as chaos. You didn't go near it. If it was deep water, if it was a lake, that, that was chaos. It was dangerous. It was seen as the abyss, as the entrance to the, as where the underworld was. You wanted nothing to do with that. Which meant, again, that when possible, it was far more common to just take a little hike 
maybe take a little bit longer, but not that much longer to get to where you wanted to go because you didn't want to go where it was dangerous. You didn't want to go there. Nobody wants to go and visit the abyss. And so Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's go across the lake. And I imagine the disciples here are taken a little bit by surprise. Don't you? They've always been trained, don't go out there. And Jesus says, let's go out there. They're probably getting a little bit nervous about what is, what is Jesus getting us into? That's the place where we don't go. There's a perfectly good trail right over there. Let's just do that. Because he's taking them out to a place where it's unknown. There's some scariness. There's some danger. So that's just in the first verse there. Let's keep going. Verse 36. We're going to go through 38. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, and he's sleeping on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So they get out there, and this is, this is essentially, I want you to understand, this is like a hurricane has hit them. This is, you know, the hurricane has come, and their greatest fears are being realized. Jesus has brought them out here to the deep waters where no one in their right mind actually goes. They probably said a couple times, Jesus, that's not why nobody does this. Why? And now this hurricane has hit and there's nowhere to go but down. And in this moment, they ask Jesus this question that I bet uh, it's the heart of what we're talking about today. It's the question of, don't you care? We thought we could trust you. You told us we could trust you. But now we're starting to wonder if this is the case because the boat is sinking. And we're terrified. And we don't know what to do. And here's the thing about this. I don't think this is unique to the disciples, is it? I know that at times in all of our lives, all of us have had those moments, probably multiple times where we've, We've sat down and, and just said, God, don't you care? Why am I out here? Why did you bring me to this place? Don't you care? Do you really care? Can I really trust you because of what's going on in my life makes it kind of hard? And so they, they've, they've called him, don't you care? And here he is. He's about to respond. Verse uh, 39. They said, don't you care? And he awoke and rebuked to the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Another way they could translate it is, is where is your faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, Here's what I want to do this morning. I mentioned this already once. We are, uh, I want to take us through two different postures, two different ways of living that we see with the disciples that I think we can find ourselves slipping into and stepping into as well. And so this first one, we're going to call it this. I had to come up with some sort of, we had to find some sort of name to label it. So uh, we're going to call it life under God. And I know that there's lots of positive stuff that comes with living life uh, under God, but, but for today's exercise, this is going to be a, a posture called life under God that shows us how we start living in a posture that, that doesn't 
trust God. And it stems out of this question, why are you afraid? He asks them that question, doesn't he? He says, why are you afraid? And you see, uh, when we find ourselves in this posture of living life under God, it's a posture that is built on fear. It is a fearful posture. It is rooted in fear. It actually probably, we've all had those moments where it starts with these, this assumption that, that God uh, is, doesn't care about you. It never starts in the place that, that God cares about me. I'm his child. He loves me more than anything in the world, and there's no wrong I can do. Uh, it, it starts with this assumption that, does God really care about me? I'm afraid about this. In fact, this is, a, this is the place, this is a posture that really starts to say, does God care more about my shortcomings, my wrongdoings, the places I've slipped up in life? And we've all sat there for a moment, does is God more upset about what I've failed at than excited about who I am? And it's this place of fear. This is a, this is a, a posture that is rooted in fear and appeasement. And you see, trust doesn't happen when the relationship is based on fear and obligation, does it? That sounds far less like a relationship and more like a hostage situation. Because... Fear says, have I done enough to make God pleased with me? Is God telling me I need to try harder, that I need to do better? So this past uh, summer, just a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, beginning of the summer, June, me and my family go up to or the coast of Oregon, and we take a trip up there. Uh, and we go, and we get to stay right on the, uh, on the beach, on the coast, in this beautiful uh, Airbnb. And, uh, and we all go up, and we're, we're spending time together. And my youngest son, I need to tell you this about my youngest son, uh, he is an ego waffle enthusiast, a connoisseur, if you will. The man knows his egos. And so he, uh, he, he has a particular one he likes. He likes the emoji face egos. Those are, those are good for him. Uh, and so it's, uh, and he, he is happy to eat egos two out of three meals a day if we let him. Like, egos can be eaten for anything. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, they're, they're the amazing food. And so he, uh, he asked me, it's dinner time, and he asked me to make him uh, an ego for dinner. And I say, why not? So I take it, and he, there's a special way that, that he likes to make egos. Uh, this is what he would call the right way. Uh, the egos are, are meant to not be put in a toaster. We don't do that crunchy stuff here. Egos are meant to be put in a microwave for 20 seconds on each side so that they come out nice and lukewarm and floppy. That's how you know it's ready. You can shake it, and it wiggles. It's good. So he, said, he asked for, for an ego for dinner. I said, sure, why not? I can do that. And so I, I go over to the microwave. And I, I need to tell you, in my, own in my own home, with my own microwave, I have one that is clearly a little bit outdated because it has numbers on it. And the one that I encountered here in this, this beautiful home had no numbers on it, but just like hieroglyphics and some knobs. And so I, I'm struggling with this thing, and I sit there, and I look at it, and I say, I, I know there's got to be a way to make it go. And, and at some point, I just say to myself, look, man, you've got a couple degrees. You can figure this out, all right? So I go in there, and, and I put the ego and the plate in the, in the microwave, and I, I set it, and I put it on there, and I, I start the microwave. 
And then I turn and I start making some dinner because, you know, I'm hungry too and other people in the family are hungry and I start doing some other stuff and I'm waiting for the beep to come. And finally, uh, you know, I hear the beep and it notifies me that the ego is ready. You know, I can go in there and I can grab it and feed my boy. And I open the, the microwave and it's like Mount St. Helens has erupted in this kitchen. Smoke is billowing everywhere. Every room of the house has a smoke detector and every smoke detector is going off, notifying us that something terrible is happening. We are under attack. And as we wave the smoke away, there is this stench and this smell. Have you ever smelled burned ego? It stays with you forever. You wake up haunting your dreams. And there is this just terrible stench. And we open all the windows and I grab this searing hot plate, but I'm going to sacrifice my hands for my family because we're all going to die if we have to smell this more. And so I run it out to the porch and I put it out on the porch and I ended up leaving it out there for two days because the smell would not go. The thing smelled for two days. It would not go away. And I want to take a moment to remind everybody what a normal ego looks like. See? Looks good, right? Seems like normal ego. Now, as I think about this, I'm, I'm processing what happened here. And I realize that this microwave that, you know, is clearly going to be on the front lines when the machines become self-aware has, uh, I set it for two minutes as opposed to 20 seconds. And do you know what an ego looks like when it's been microwaved for two minutes? <laughs> That's the devil's breakfast right there. That's That's terrifying. <laughs> but here's the thing. I bet there are a lot of us, and I bet those disciples that are terrified that we're not going to press all the right buttons, that we're not going to turn all the right knobs, that if we don't try harder and say the right things, we're going to end up like an overcooked ego, cast out, left on the porch, burned, wounded, hurting, unwanted. And we're afraid. We're afraid that's going to happen. And so, and we ask these questions, how can I get God to care about me? What I want to help us do here is instead of thinking about a life under God, a life with fear, based on fear, fearful that he doesn't care, I want us to help, I want us to start thinking about what does it look like to living a life with God? Because there's an opposite posture and that's a life with God. And what I want you to notice, recall back where, where Jesus is in the boat. The first thing that we want to recognize here is that Jesus is in the boat with them. He may be sleeping, but he's right there. And it's, he's standing up and he's saying, why are you afraid? Have you no, where's your faith? I'm right here with you. You may be afraid, but I promise you I'm right here with you. And in that, kind of the solution to when we're afraid somebody doesn't care. Because uh, if we feel like somebody's not with us, somebody's not available to us, somebody's not going to respond to us, then we're not really experiencing them as with us, are we? They may be there, but they're not really there. But Jesus says, I'm with you. In fact, I want to Throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, do you, know, do you want to know how with us he is? There are multiple times you can go through the Gospels and see him refer to us as his brothers, his sisters, his mothers, 
his family, his friends. I'm with you. I care. You may be in a storm. You may be feeling burnt. You may be feeling left behind and wondering, am I going to keep sticking with you? But I'm with you. And he invites us to see ourselves not as a hostage, but as a part of God's family. And so we want to move into this God with posture, don't we? And so if we find ourselves struggling, which we all will and all have, and and we'll continue to do so because that's what it means to be human at points. If we find ourselves struggling and ask ourselves, does God care? I want you to ask him a specific thing. Not do you care, but I want you to ask him to help you see that he does. I want all of us to be able to, to feel like we can go to God and say, God, I, I don't know if you care right now, but I'm going to take a step out here and just ask you to show me that you do. And so when you catch yourself assuming that God doesn't really care about you, that he cares more about your flaws and faults, again, I'm going to invite you to say, God, help me see that you care about me in this moment. Even if I failed, even if I'm struggling, help me see that. And that's how, that's how I want to invite each of us to approach God when we, when we find ourselves living under God. Approach him as one who cares. And now, I want to take us to the second posture we can find ourselves in. You know, there's God under, or life under God. But there's also this second posture that we can find ourselves slipping into. And it's this one that we're going to call life over God. And life over God, if we think of what it means to live a posture of life over God, it means that we're seeing our, our engagement with God as purely transactional. Notice he says, have you, have you no more faith? Have you still no faith? Where is your faith? Have you, ye of little faith? However, whatever version you read. And this one, again, isn't so much rooted in fear. Far more in as, if, as if there's like some sort of formula that if I can just figure it out on how to live and how to function and what to think, if I can just get that formula right, then I'm going to get all that I need from God. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to get the, the, the things that God owes me. Because he's a formula to be figured out something to have a transaction with, somebody I can manage. And this is a posture that says God exists for me to manage so I can get what I need from him. But that's it. It's formulaic and transactional. Um, I gotta be honest. We don't realize a lot of times that we're stepping into this. But we step into that when we, when we feel like, we, I can't trust God, so I'm just gonna manage him instead. You know, I, uh, I was reading, I don't know where I read it, but I, recently I saw this, uh, this interesting thing. Uh, essentially, it speaks to why no one should ever, ever use social media ever because it will always come back to get you, my friends. It will never, nothing good comes out of these things. And so I was reading about this uh, football player back in 2010. His name's Stevie Johnson. Played for the Buffalo Bills. And they're in a regular season game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they were down at halftime big, and they come back and tie the game up and go into overtime. So now you've got Stevie Johnson, the Buffalo Bills, tie game against Pittsburgh Steelers. Bills have the ball first. In overtime, if you, at that point, if you scored first, you won the whole game. And so they drive down the field, and they are just moving the ball down the field, and they get to, you know, to, towards the end zone, and they hike the ball. Stevie Johnson runs his route or whatever it is and ends up wide open in the end zone. Nobody's around him for yards. 
Nobody's around him. The quarterback sees him, throws him the ball. It's a guaranteed touchdown. A guaranteed victory is on the way. Everybody can feel it, taste it, smell it. The victory is about to happen. And the ball comes to Stevie Johnson, and with no one around him, he drops it. And they end up not scoring at all, turning the ball over, and Pittsburgh goes down the field and kicks the game-winning field goal. And here's the thing that jumped out at me. Afterwards, Stevie Johnson tweets this to God. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. And I know all of us are like, sighing and you know, judging this dude, but let's, let's step back. We're not gonna, we shouldn't judge somebody in the moment of their, you know, in their weakest and you know, toughest points. We've all, because here's the thing. I bet none of us have tweeted that. But I bet a lot of us have said that in our inside, our head voice. I did what you wanted me to do. I figured out the formula. I cracked the code. Why is this not happening for me? Why am I still struggling? We had a deal, which is how, if you want to know, if you want to recognize, if you want to ask yourself, what posture am I living in? If you are saying to yourself, if you are approaching God and saying, we, I've made a deal, you and I, God, we, we've struck a bargain, then this is the posture you're living in, a life over God. And I know we've all been in those spots. Think about, uh, you know, how many of us have said, if we're parents, if I raise my kids this way, the right way, if I instill the right values in them, if I uh, teach them to love Jesus, if I do all these things, they're going to grow up to be happy, successful, and have life together. And I did all those right things. But then we all know people who did those things and their kids still struggled with addiction or struggled with faith or didn't want to be a part of the family anymore. And they, and they felt betrayed. They did it all right. It wasn't any of their fault, but yet something still happened and, and they felt betrayed. We had a deal, God. Are there people out here who have said, wondered with, when it comes to God. We, we had a deal, God. I, I manage my money well. You, you told me to manage my money well, to, to care for your resources that you blessed me with. So I did. I saved up. I, I you know, gave to the right organizations. I budgeted. I stuck to it. I made wise decisions. No extravagant purchases. And I am ready. I, 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 I've, I'm set. I've got a nice nest egg. And then all the emergency per, uh, bills and things that can break and everything happens all at once. And no matter how much savings you have, there's not enough money to solve it. And again, it's, but I did things right. I answered the formula correctly. What's going on? Or if maybe you know somebody or yourself who's struggling with health issues, disabilities, and, and you've sat there and you said, I've done everything right in terms of taking care of my health. I've, I've exercised, I've eaten well, I've avoided the bad foods. I get plenty of sleep. I've done all these things. And yet still, why me? Why, why am I having to deal with all of this? When we think of our marriages or, or those of us who are people who are expecting to be married and we sit there and we say, I, 
I made myself right. I, I got myself ready. So I was a good and healthy person to enter into this marriage. I, I'm looking for the right person. I'm not just going to accept anybody. I've got my standards high. And then I get married and I, I, I'm doing all the right things that I'm supposed to do. I'm loving my family. I'm having date night. I'm doing all of these things. And yet still I run into problems. And still it seems rocky and difficult. It's not how it's supposed to be, God. We did everything right. How many of us have found ourselves saying, God, that's not the deal? And so that's living life above God. But there's a way to move into life with God from that. And there's a clue to this found uh, in uh, how to live life with God in the question that the disciples asked there at the very end. When they, he, he, shuts everything down, and he, he asks them his questions, and then they are filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And if we do allow ourselves to do a little digging here, I want to take us back to the book of Psalms, because there's something here deeply connected to what the disciples just said that, that is going to help us move into a, a life with God. Psalm 107 Verse 23 is where I'm going to start. And we'll have some of the verses up on the screen, but it's a longer one. So uh, we'll start in verse 23. Some went down to the ships or to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went up, uh, went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. They were at their wit's end while this storm is hitting them. Does that sound familiar at all? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and he made the waves of the sea hush. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So what, it sounded kind of familiar, didn't it? What we, we see here, what the psalmist writes with such insight, I think, we've got to dig a little bit, but we, we can discover it, is that a life with God is a life with vulnerability. Here's what I mean. If there is no vulnerability in a relationship, there is no trust. Because there's not a relationship. A life with God is a life with vulnerability. Verse 28, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. They were vulnerable. They, they showed us what it meant to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable is to cry out for help. You know what to be vulnerable really is? It's to acknowledge that there is a storm going on. To acknowledge that, yes, there is stuff going on and that I am scared, that I need help, that I am in pain, that I am worried. And to cry out to God and say, I, I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. But there's this storm and I just want you to know that I need you. A life with God is a life of vulnerability. And when we can do that, what we start to do is trust that God is with us, that he cares, that he won't judge us, that he won't view us weak or less than, that he sees us as people who are just pouring out our souls and our spirits and our hearts and so that he can come and be with us in those moments. 
So there are two postures, remember, two postures, life under God, where it's built on fear, and life over God, where it's built on transactions and deal-making. And then we, we saw that there is ways to step into a life with God, acknowledging that we, we are part of his family, that he invites us into a deeper relationship that doesn't require fear, that he is somebody who all, he, he's, he desires our vulnerability and that we can be vulnerable with him and that that moves us towards a life with God. But I want to take one more uh, piece, uh, one, the last few minutes here, I just want to do one more thing here, maybe a, a little bit more practical exercise or something that we can do uh, to help us move from a life under God and a, or a life over God and step into a life with God. Uh, and, and so this is a practice that can help us see uh, that God is trustworthy and that we can live with, with him. So I have uh, all of this here. I'm very excited about this. And as I do something, I just, I just want you to tell me what you see as I do this. It's not an Oreo, for those of you that are, are assuming that. What did you see as I was doing that? Or what do you see now, even? Circle, a dot, a black mark in the very middle. So often, what I've experienced is this is how we end up seeing life. There's a bunch of space in life, and we find ourselves focused on the mark in the middle. We find ourselves focused on that thing in the, in the moment, the struggle, the pain, the hurt, which is fine to see. And it, we need to acknowledge it because we're vulnerable, but we find ourselves hyper-focused on it. But there's still all this space. And we've got to be able to see the space. The psalmist, think back in verse 30. Uh, then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Don't miss what the psalmist is saying. He says that there is something beautiful and powerful that happens when you start stepping out and overtly thanking God for who he is and what he's done. How does it feel when somebody comes to you and thanks you? It starts to change. How does it feel when you're able to step to somebody and say, thank you for what you've done? It starts to change. There's something powerful there. And the psalmist says there's something powerful in seeing that God loves and blesses you, his steadfast love. Thank the Lord for his steadfast love. There's something powerful in that. But it says there's something powerful in understanding that you are uh, the wondrous works of children of man. You are a child of God. There's power in that. It's power that moves you from under and over to with. And so we're going to, I want to challenge all of us to do an exercise, a practice, something this week uh, that, that may, at first, you're going to be like, oh, that's kind of cheesy. But no, 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 stick with me here. Uh, we're going to do something. Uh, it's, I want us to count our blessings this week. I want us to count our blessings this week. And I want us to do it in a very real way. Uh, I want to challenge us to do it in a way that we can actually visualize and see it. And what I don't want us to do, here's the thing. Let's not approach this as if this is just the power of positive thinking and this is just finding nice things. No, 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 no. Because if we are really able to examine and see the whole space around us, what we're actually able to do is find, discover a very deep truth about life. And that it's that God has been present and doing things and blessing us the whole time. 
doesn't mean there weren't marks, there weren't blotches, there weren't dots, but there's a whole bunch more out there. So what I'm actually going to challenge us to do is get a piece of paper this week, not this big if you don't want to, but get a piece of paper this week, put a dot in the middle, and then take the week to identify what are the things that God has blessed me? How has he blessed me? Where has he been? And you know, I know it's, we always want to get in there and be like, you know, what is the big way like that God's blessed me? And we've got to find it. Start small. It doesn't matter. Just start small. So you know what? Thank you, God, for blessing us with Oreos. Or maybe it's family. Or music the smell of rain. Our ACs. Dr. Pepper. Grace. Mercy. And the list will go on and on and on. And as you do this, what you'll start to see is that there's a lot more of this than there is of that. And so may we all go out this week, and if we're living and find ourselves living in places of under God or over God, let us start stepping into a life with God. And if we don't know how to do that, then let's just find our blessings. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, the chance to, to see the way that you've blessed us. Allow us to pause and reflect. And even if it's the smallest things, allow us to appreciate those and take confidence and hope and inspiration from those that you are there and with us. Uh, I, we thank you for this, this gift of this life you've given us and we just simply ask that you allow us to, to live it and walk through it with you. In your name, amen.